Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. For listeners who have been tuning in regularly, you've probably noticed I've got this little spiel off the top where I'm asking people to go over to YouTube. I have a channel over there, Life As A, dot, dot. And basically, it's just highlights from the main audio versions, from the podcast versions of these talks that I have with these great guests. And the reason I'm plugging it so hard is that I think this content really does matter. And I want to get it in front of people. I want to get in front of youth, people that are still undecided, who just don't know what they want to do with their lives. And I think this platform, you know, One YouTube, offers that opportunity kind of get up close and personal with some of these guests in a different format. And if you're just not into audio, if you're not into podcasting as a whole, that's fine. That's okay. Well, you can still digest the content in a different way. I would encourage you, if you do know somebody who's looking for that career, looking for some ideas, direct them over to lifeasa.dot over on YouTube. You know, if they're into videos, they might just find what they're looking for over there. And while you are there, hey, I would always appreciate a like or subscribe. It's the best way to let that algorithm know that the content matters, that it should be put in front of others. Well, I do thank you for letting me ask this of you, but I think it's about time we get into today's episode. If I were to ask you what a chief criminal investigator does within the field of law enforcement, my guess is that many of you would be able to tell me a thing or two. No doubt, this has to do with a near-cultural obsession we have for media portrayals of the work. And that said, I do know there are some elements of the work which would surprise, as film and entertainment doesn't exactly fully portray reality. Now, what if I asked you to describe the work of a chief criminal investigator and commander of a task force called ICAT, aka Internet Crimes Against Children? That may be an area you would know less about and perhaps not want to know about in any intimate way. Well, sadly, reality demands that some law enforcement officers engage themselves within the space in order to push back against the tide of bad actors who are inflicting pain and suffering on the most innocent. Well, on today's episode, we have one such professional who, along with his team, are doing all they can to protect and serve. We'll dive into his work, including his roles, responsibilities, extreme challenges, and rewards of the work. Now, to be clear, the subject matter on today's episode may not be appropriate or even desirable to some. Therefore, listening discretion is advised. Kevin Atkins has been a career law enforcement officer in South Carolina since 1999, serving in various roles from patrol investigations and administration. He joined the South Carolina Attorney General's office in October of 2014, where he worked relentlessly as an investigator in the Internet Crimes Against Children section, or ICAT. In June of 2019, he was promoted to Chief Criminal Investigator and Commander of the South Carolina ICAT Task Force. Prior to joining the South Carolina Attorney General's Office, Kevin worked with the Newberry Police Department and the Lexington County Sheriff's Office. Now, Kevin is a proud graduate of the University of South Carolina with a Bachelor of Science degree in Criminal Justice and a Master's of Criminal Justice degree. 
He is also a graduate of the 236th session of the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia. In 2022, Kevin received the Director's Award from the United States Secret Service, and in 2024, he received the Light of Hope Award from the Innocent Lives Foundation. Both of these awards recognized his contributions to the ICAT space. So with all of this noted, here is my conversation with Kevin Atkins. Yeah, so welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Kevin? Man, I'm well. I'm so thankful to be here and happy that you're having me on. Yeah, looking forward to this talk. You know, I was just speaking to you off air about, you know, the kind introduction of Chris Hagnagy, social engineer who I had on this program not too long ago. And uh, he has some glowing things to say about you. So like I said, I'm really excited for this conversation. With that in mind, I do have this first segment lined up, something called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners know, it's a segment where I just read off a definition from Wikipedia of something related to what the guest does. And surprise, surprise, I have you down here for law enforcement. So let me just read that off for you, and then I'll ask for some comments. Does this sound okay? Yes, sir. All right. So law enforcement. Law enforcement is the activity of some members of government who act in an organized manner to enforce the law by discovering, deterring, rehabilitating, or punishing people who violate the rules and norms governing that society. Now, admittedly, you know, this is a definition that 99.9% of listeners are going to be familiar with, right? There's no shocking revelations within there. But based off of your experiences, based off your personal views of law enforcement, I'd be curious how you might you know, color that definition for us or add some some flavor to it. What would you say to that? Yeah, um, from a local perspective, when you're in a, especially in a small community, like I was how I started my career back in 1999, it is enforcing law, but you learn, you go into it thinking, I'm going to lock up bad guys, I'm going to drive cars really, really fast, I'm going to have my gun out and chasing bank robbers. And you realize so much more is about solving problems and working with the community. You're in people's houses because they're arguing over who ate the last pork chop at the refrigerator and it's three o'clock in the morning. And that's not really what going to, to school prepared you for. And when you study constitutional law and those are the kind of things you're doing, you're, you're doing a lot of domestics and you're, you're sitting out with people counseling their children because somebody threw a rock through a window or vandalized something. It, it's a lot more to it than just enforcing the law. I mean, you write tickets and uh, my old chief used to say people don't like police officers because we have to give out medicine. People like firefighters because they come put your fire out and make you feel better. And, uh, that is true. You do have to give out tickets and, and arrest warrants and, and put people in jail, but you do get to enforce law. You do get to make lives better. It's just a lot of times when we show up, there's generally two parties involved at least, and somebody's happy after you leave and somebody's probably not. And so that's kind of the dynamic. It's hard to make everybody happy. And I think as I've gotten older, this is uh, going into the year 25, I've kind of, that's kind of one of my core philosophies is you will fail 100% of the time if you try to make everybody happy. And uh, so I, I quit trying to do that. And I, I realized that you just do the best job you can and you enforce the laws that as you see fit. I mean, we do have a lot of discretion. That's the one thing that gets left out is officer discretion. Somebody could commit the same crime two days in a row. One officer may not arrest that person. Other they may may put them in jail that day. So we have those those opportunities to make decisions and and try to help people best you can. And, and a lot of that comes with some maturity. I was pretty, I won't say wild, but a lot more eager to to get out and run the roads and beat the streets and arrest people and enforce laws than maybe than I am now. I think as I've gotten older, I'm, I'm willing to actually listen and try to figure out what the root of the problem is versus just saying, here's what the statute says. Here's what the law says. You broke it. Here's your ticket. Or you got to go to jail. Really helpful insight there. And I think one of the things I picked up on there is that 
like all professions, I suppose, you grow into it over time. You know, you, you gain a deeper sense of understanding and experience and all these different things. But it strikes me as that law enforcement, it might be accentuated to a certain extent in, the, in that sense where you are growing to it. Like you said, you're, you're taking more time to listen, perhaps. And when, you know, when you first get into it, you're like, okay, it's, it's all about right and wrong, black and white. You know, you broke the law. Here's the ticket. Now it's maybe some of these understanding these contextual factors, why this is occurring and really trying to solve the situation and finding ways to, to, to you know, understand it better so it doesn't happen again. Maybe helping that person out or the parties involved. And I think the problem, too, in law enforcement is they tell us that the average career is about two years. So most people never get to that level where they're actually entrenched in the community and helping people because it's just such a uh, I mean, I know a lot of people that just change jobs every year or two in law enforcement, just bounce from agency to agency. But, you know, I looked at the picture of my old graduating class from 1999, then maybe two of us left out of about wow. uh, 60 people. So, and, wow. and and I would say that that two year average probably was about right for that class as I, I track people's careers over the years and we're running to people. We just, we dwindled very quickly. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's a question coming up within this, you know, in my research that I, I want to ask you about, and I, I would suspect that it has to do with this in terms of some of the stresses and pressures that this profession puts on people, but uh, we'll get into that later. But this also might be an opportune time to, uh, to learn a little bit more about your work, you know, for the South Carolina Attorney General's Office, and specifically the Internet Crimes Against Children section, ICAC. You know, maybe you could uh, share with listeners a little bit more about what you do. Yes, sir. So 2014, I've been in the ICAC unit at the Attorney General's office. And since 2019, I've been the commander. We have 61 ICAC task forces across America. And each person over those task forces are called commanders. I don't really like that title, but I'll take it. And um, we're focused on anybody who aims to hurt, harm children using the Internet, using uh, electronic equipment, phones, laptops, email, social media accounts. And unfortunately, it's a full-time business. We've seen... Our rates of cases go up about 35% every year. We're not adding, you know, any more really manpower or money to the equation. I'll tell you, in 2018, we got about 1,800 cyber tips from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And this year, we're going to be between 10 and 11,000 when the final numbers come in. And that's just oh in a couple of years. Yes, sir. It, it's a full-time job. Each year, we hit a, I don't like to say we hit a record, we break a record, but we hit a high, a new high watermark, I'll say, in arrests. This year, we'll arrest more people than we've ever arrested on this task force. It'll be over 300 people. And I think last year, we were around 281. And we're still, the numbers are still growing. I, I wouldn't shot me to finish the year about 310, 315 for a small state like South Carolina. But it is a full-time job, unfortunately. And it's one of the jobs where it's target zero. I'd love to put myself out of business. And, and there is no uh, crimes against children involved in the internet, but it, it's growing exponentially. And we as parents are really failing, too, because that's one of the biggest increases we're seeing, the level of self-production. I worked an investigation of the week where somebody had posted a, a nude video on TikTok, and my offender, we'll say, our victim, was four years old. They had their own iPhone, own email. I've had a seven-year-old with their own cash app. You know, my generation, the, the television was the babysitter. And uh, now it's phones. So people just hand their kids a phone, a tablet. There's no parameters. And there's no locks. Oftentimes when we speak, we'll say, you know, you lock your door at night and you lock your windows, but you leave your Internet open. And that's the problem we've got now. And, you know, bad guys, they like the path of least resistance. And so you don't need to go hide at the bus stop in the bushes. You just can go on the Internet, send out some uh, texts and, and you're finding victims. 
And so that's compounding the problem. And then a lot of just technology, everybody's got two cell phones, a tablet, an iPad, a laptop, a desktop, and that much access to the internet is just causing, like I said, our, our job to explode. And we're, we're way behind. We're lagging. It's a struggle to keep up. Yeah. Wow. I mean, those numbers that you read off or you, you just spoke of are, are sobering to say the least. Like that, that's, it makes complete sense, but it, it, all the same, like it's just, it, it blows you away to hear those numbers. And I'm, I'm sure it blows you away and your team away, like to consistently see this rise year in and year out, despite, you know, the, the best efforts of what you're doing. Like, you know, these are societal factors, you know, you know, the way technology, as you'd already referenced, is developing and evolving and our own habits, people's habits and how they're using it. And with people out there, bad actors who are just ready and willing and able to, to act on all of this, it must be a challenge to say the least on so many different levels. It is. And, you know, the Internet technology are amazing. Our civilization has developed so greatly with having access to information and technology. And we don't teach abstinence in that sense of the word. We want kids to be involved in learning in the global learning space. But unfortunately, people will take advantage of that. And unfortunately, minors these days don't understand the foreverness of the Internet. There's programs out there that are getting better, like Nick Mick has a take it down feature where you can work with these technology companies to take down when minors do make a bad video or send a bad picture. But the problem is people duplicate, replicate, keep sending out. And uh, you know, a big problem we've got now, too, is the sextortion component where it used to be somebody would convince you to take a nude photo or video. Then they'd say, well, if you don't send me five more videos, this is what I'm going to do. Now we've got them, you owe us $3,000. And uh, we're seeing an epidemic of young people around the country committing suicide because they've been sextorted. We have a representative here in South Carolina, Representative Brandon Guffey, his son, it happened to him. And it was within 24 hours, you know, of contact to death. And trying to track these people down is a monumental task too, because most of them, the bad actors are overseas. And so we try to work with our federal partners and to track those individuals down. But sextortion is taking the lives of a lot of good kids. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't want to go to their parents and they're taking their lives. And it's just a terrible tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, to add further clarity to, to the work that you're doing, obviously, there's a serious tone to all of it, no doubt. But I've got this other segment, a day in the life. And maybe you could break down for us a little bit, you know, what, what a day or even a week might look like in terms of your workload and what you're involved in. Yes, sir. In, in South Carolina, we're super proactive. So we do, I try to give too big of a peek behind the curtain sometimes. I say that a lot at press conferences because they always want to know, tell us all the different things you're doing and the platforms you're on. And we just say all of them. But a typical day, like yesterday, we were up, all of us were up before and on the road around 430. We did a search warrant yesterday related to a cyber tip that was generated by the National Center for Missing Explorer Children. It was a Snapchat case and uh, did a search warrant, made an arrest on that. We also do proactive undercover investigations where we people are familiar with the Catcher Predator years ago, a show that Chris Hansen hosted. We do something similar, and so where we pose as minors and see if individuals will travel to have sexual encounters with underage minors. So we do that a lot of times. We'll embed and work an 80-hour week and knock that out. And then uh, a lot of us just processing these. We call them cyber tips which is these electronic service providers are mandated by law to report these criminal actions to NICMIC or the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. And if it comes back to South Carolina, we take those cases in. And those are the ones I was saying we're seeing about a 35% increase each year. And uh, so just trying to deal with the volume of that. We have an education component too, where we try to go speak to schools 
community groups, civic groups, whoever wants us to speak. So we try to balance that in too. But our office has somebody we pay full time to do that. We have an education coordinator. We're one of uh, only a handful of task forces in America that have one of those full time. But most of it is just stuff they don't show you on cops where we're processing paperwork, we're writing search warrants and court orders to these electronic service providers and trying to reverse engineer these cases to uh, track down the bad guy and, and then go pay them a visit is what a lot of it is. So there's that scary component, but it's, it's fun when you get to embed with the task force. You know, for me, I've been able to travel a lot the last couple of years and speak on different things that we're doing in South Carolina. Uh, so we have a lot of different internet crimes against children conferences around America. So that's been fun and getting to go speak. I'd never in a million years, as you can hear from my accent, thought anybody would ever want me to come speak in public. But <laughs> uh, I told somebody it, it's almost comical to me that to have a slight speech impediment, have this terrible, deep Southern accent that people are asking me to come speak. And to me, it's, <laughs> it's hilarious. But uh, I'm really enjoying it because I do think all our faults here in South Carolina, our task force, that we're doing a really good job at being proactive and taking the fight to the bad guy. A lot of places around America just have to kind of sit back and take these cases that come in because we're just inundated. We can't handle the volume. But I know the quality of the offender that we're able to identify because that's our big thing is we preach in South Carolina is what else, what else, what else? You can solve the initial crime, but what else are they doing? It's very rare that they've only done the one thing that we're investigating. So we want to always work and strive really hard to identify other victims of crime and track them down and kind of get them the counseling or assistance that they need. And that's been the fun part. That's really been the evolution of the last couple of years where we really put our focus on. And that that part makes it fun when you can do that. To what degree would you say that like your work is within the field or, or, or maybe your office is divided up like you have special task forces that are going out into the field consistently versus others that are behind a desk, you know, working these cyber tips, as you just explained? Or is it kind of like at different points, everyone will be out in the field? For us as task forces, we rely heavily on our, we call them affiliates which are our local law, our sheriff's offices, our police departments, because there's no way, there's four of us. We have four criminal investigators at the AG's office. And then we also have six forensic examiners. If I do a search warrant and I come seize, you know, three laptops and two phones, we bring them back to the lab and our examiners process all that data. And we're looking for evidence of the, again, the initial crime, but we're also doing, we're uncovering a lot of other criminal activity and able to identify a lot of victims. I know recently we, you know, we just had a case where, we didn't know we had some victims and we're able to track all three of those individuals down and, and trying to bring them some justice now. So those cases are fun. We can, we can do that. But for us, the affiliates are what we heavily rely on. But unfortunately, across our state, not many of them can dedicate all their time to ICAG. So they're working robbery, rape, murder, shoplifting, got to deal with all these other cases. And ICAC's kind of when we can get to it, which I hope that shocks people when they hear that and they demand better of us because you all deserve better from us. If somebody broke into your house, you'd say, oh, I want everybody dedicated to solving my crime. And if somebody shoplifted from your store that you own, you know, I, I think we can all get behind understanding that these type of cases that involve, you know, pedophilia and the, the sexual abuse of minors of the Internet, we, we can all band together on that. And, I'm, I'm so fortunate to work with the task force. We have so many committed and dedicated people that I can always rely on to call and text and email and, and ask to do stuff for me and help us. But uh, to get back to your question, the four of us are, we're constantly to feel like one of our investigators was out helping another agency do a search this morning after we did mine yesterday. I think I've had my car 10 months. I put about 18,000 miles on it. Just traveling the wow. whole state. So we, we stay busy, but 
I tell people I'm not digging ditches either. I do spend a lot of time behind the desk processing paperwork and actually having to go through these cases. And that's the dirty side of it is we know people make these videos. They do terrible things with children, but somebody's got to actually sit down and watch and listen to these things and describe them so that that is the dirty part of the business. And so it takes, we have a lot of people that try it and text me or call me and say, Hey, this is not for me. And I'm appreciative of that too. I don't think we should be a tough guy in this business because of the mental health component of it. And, and so I would, I tell people all the time, I'd much rather y'all tap out now and tell us this is not for me. I can't be involved in these type of cases than drag it out two or three years and be miserable and, 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 and put yourself in a dark place psychologically and emotionally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This other segment here, Pathways, and theme here is to show how people made their way into the work that they're actually doing. And I'd like to start here by rewinding. I mean, you already spoke a little bit in terms of, you know, some of the perceptions of law enforcement, you know, stereotypes about it and and the realities. But in terms of yourself, like when you were in your youth, like what initially attracted you to getting into law enforcement? Was it sort of like the the media depictions of it, you know, or the almost sort of like romanticizing of it to a certain degree? Yeah. Like was it that? I mean, for a lot of people, myself included, like there's, you know, you envision yourself doing this line of work when you're a child. I'm curious about somebody like yourself who took it all the way. What, what, what was it for you? I'd love to tell you I had this sense of service and I just wanted to give back to my community. I watched the movie Point Break. And I saw Keanu yeah. Reeves as the FBI agent thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be that. <laughs> and so it was around this time yeah. in middle school. I, I really, I guess around middle school age, I started thinking, this could be a career. This is something I might want to do and have fun. And again, that, but at that time, I was very immature. And I thought from watching TV shows and movies, because we didn't have the internet back then, I just thought this is all going to be fast action, running around, chasing bad guys, yeah. hanging off the helicopter skid. Uh you know, yeah, that, yeah. that's what I thought it was going to be. And then, you know, started going to college for it. And I still was completely immature about it. I just thought I'll walk right in and fit right in. And uh, doing some internships opens your eyes. I did several with uh, a local police department. They also, they were public safety. They did fire and police. And I learned I definitely did not want to run into burden buildings. But I still was intrigued about what the officers were doing, how they were helping people. We were rolling up to scenes where people had been shot or robbed or burglaries in progress. And, and that was exciting. And um, then I started right out of college. I was 22 years old. Was not ready. Just was not ready. Yeah. I thought I was maybe in the wrong place, to be honest with you. I, I just couldn't. I couldn't find my voice. I think a lot of times as we've seen people or I've met officers that they came from a military background or used to discipline and uh, being able to tell people what to do. But in law enforcement, you have to tell people what to do. You have to find your voice and be confident. And are there not people aren't going to listen to you? And so it took me a while to, to find my voice. And I'm, I'm probably too nice still after 24 years. But at that time, I really thought, you know, I, I've chosen the wrong. I'm not going to be a, a very good police officer. And I think probably one of my supervisors, who is my friend, probably thought the same thing, too. And I remember distinctly. Somebody ran from me. I jumped out of my car, I ran them down, and then I thought, started thinking, okay, I can do this. I can be a police officer. And then I just started getting a little more proactive and kind of found my niche with that. And just you start kind of opening up and just getting that experience. I, I've worked with officers who the first day they show up, and, man, they just got it. And then I've seen a lot yeah. of people wash out. They never really figure it out. I mean, maybe some of my friends and colleagues would say I still haven't figured it out. But it, it did take me a while, at least a yeah. year probably. And I was really 
considering quitting just because I just could not seem to get the hang of it or, or, or being in charge. I guess I had a problem being in charge because at that age, you haven't really been a supervisor. You know, you're working odd yeah. jobs. Uh, you're running a cash register or serving food. It just doesn't give you that leadership qualities. And I, I don't think I had those initially. I, I was just, I was very green and unprepared. And going to college, it doesn't prepare you. Know, being in a classroom doesn't prepare you for being out on the street and seeing horrible things and, and, and trying to help people solve their problems. I just was not ready. And uh, after about a year, I knew I wasn't, and I, I didn't know I'd have chosen the right career. So I went back to grad school while I was working. And so I'd have to, there were times where I would, I'd get up at you know five and go to work. And then uh, or I'll say five in the afternoon and go to work all night. Then I would sleep an hour, drive to Columbia, go to class all day, drive back, not sleep, work all night again, drive back, you know. And uh, so that was a challenging three years to get that done, to get my master's degree. But I knew I probably wanted a little more than answering calls all night. And I wanted to be a detective, I realized, after I got my master's degree and, and being around because I was probably the younger one in that degree program. And so I was around older professionals, managers, leaders. I kind of want to be where they're at eventually. I, I can't do this forever. And so that was that was a good thing for me to go back to school. Well, sorry to interrupt. What was the master's in? It's in criminal justice. Yeah. Criminal justice at the University of South Carolina. They had a program for people already in law enforcement was what it was targeted toward. They called it a weekend program. So you get one weekend a month. That that was very beneficial for me and helped give me some clarity and then get on my right career path. I say I had clarity. I still wasn't sure. Because my agency was around 30 to 35 sworn officers, which is decent size in a state like South Carolina, but still small. I thought, I'll go somewhere large. I'll go to this large sheriff's office nearby. And if I don't like it there, I'll, I'll quit. I'll find something else to do. Because at that time, I had a young family, had a wife, very young daughter, a son on the way. And so I need to make a change and I worry about, you know, financially for them, too. And uh, it was, it was the best thing that happened to me because you kind of got thrown to the fire at that agency. I guess I had been babied at my first agency where people took care of things for me. And then when I went to this large agency, I didn't have anybody to take care of me. I, I had to ask a lot of questions and didn't know what some court hearings were that I had to go to. And that, that was after, what, four or five years of experience. I still I didn't understand how the game was played. And so going there was great. Became a detective in property crimes, which is a difficult field because there's not a lot of evidence left behind. And in those days, it's not like on TV where somebody breaks your house and they send three crime scene people out. It was you. with a, I had a Polaroid camera and some fingerprint dust. And uh, so learn to process some of those scenes and, and, and work in property crimes and thought, well, if I can do this, I can, I can, I can do anything. And uh, I was actually also studying to go back to go to law school and uh, got a job offer to come back to my original agency uh, with a supervisory capacity. And uh, they promised me, hey, you come back. We'll let you apply to go to the FBI National Academy, uh, which is a 10-week program in Quantico, Virginia. And so that was very tempting. So I gave up the law school dreams because I would stay up late doing LSAT tests and uh, went back to Newberry. And they came through all their promises. I was in a leadership capacity. Got to go to the FBI Academy, which was great. Made some lifelong friends there. And my chief was set to retire. And I kind of thought I'd be the next chief. And um, they would not accept my application. That hurt, but I thought I could still work for whoever comes in, and then that didn't work out. I kind of fell backwards into this ICAC role. It was I was in a state of kind of desperation, 
of I need something, I need it fast, or me and this individual are going to get in a fight, or he's going to fire me. It was kind of the situation we were in, and uh, which is very stressful to go to work every day when you just do not want to be there. And I had not had that problem previous. All the days of my I couldn't wait to get to work. Couldn't wait to throw my uniform on and sign on, and it was just so much fun. And I, I was miserable for a time there, and uh, fell into this job at the AG's office. And it's the best thing that ever happened to me career-wise, to be honest with you. It's just been so rewarding for what you do and what you can do. And I tell people, get to a football game when you're working in a small agency and you write somebody a parking ticket and somebody comes up to you at the game and say, I heard you wrote my uncle a parking ticket. And they get, they get in an argument with you. Nobody gets to argue uh, with me now in public because I arrested somebody for child pornography. I think we've gone to house with people with 30 and 40 page criminal rap sheets, just career criminals. Even they had disdain for it. One of them was excited that I was there. I was like, man, this, I, I'm so appreciative of you coming over here. And he was the, the <laughs> town thief. <laughs> he actually told me, he said, man, I'm a crackhead, but I would never do anything like this. And so that that was the odd conversation me and him had on the front yeah, porch. Yeah. He was so happy I was there. He kept bragging on me. He's like, this guy's got a master's degree, honey, do his life. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and so, I, like I said, again, the ICAT component has been super rewarding. It's, it's offered me the opportunity to travel the country and speak and teach and, and just be a part of something so large. And I, I, I know we've helped people and rescue people and save people. So that, that makes me happy and proud. One other quick question. You already explained like the challenges when you were moving into the profession, at least initially, were there any particular traits that you possessed, like in considering who you were when you were younger that aligned well with law enforcement? Is there anything there? Army won't say nothing. <laughs> I should not have been a <laughs> successful police officer. Looking back at my youth, I think just being willing to have casual conversation, I guess, because that's what some people want. They don't always want to be yelled at. They don't respond to that. And I think maybe working in the street, it wasn't as beneficial. But I think in the, in the state we're in now, as far as speaking to people and doing interviews with suspects, I think they respond well to that. But looking back on me as a child and, and youth, no, there was no, I had no skills. That one, <laughs> should have made me a good police officer. No, sir. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Well, I do want to slide into this other segment here, a Q&A discovery. And, uh, you know, as you'd explained already, I mean, in terms of the work that you're doing, the stakes couldn't be much higher. You know, I, I could imagine like the winds being like just out of this world for you and your team when you're putting, you know, one of these perpetrators behind bars or you're, you're successfully prosecuting them. But then conversely, I mean, at times, some of these dead ends, perhaps when, you know, you're, you're trying to find somebody who's done something terrible, but you just, you can't, it just, it leads nowhere. So my question here is like, how do you manage that roller coaster of emotion? You know, the ups and the downs, how do you get through those moments? Yeah. I mean, it can be frustrating. You know, you've done all you can do and somebody's getting away with something like this. And for us, you know, like I said, there's four of us and we also have an analyst. I don't want to forget her. And uh, so the five of us can sit down and talk and uh, we can commiserate about some of our failures. We also have a mental health professional assigned to us. And so that's been a big, we had to fight really, really hard. We were not as progressive as maybe we should have been and did fight for it and we got it. And I think it's been beneficial to our office. Unfortunately, we've made, we're on our second mental health professional in the last three years, and we've made it available to our task force. They're just not really buying in. I can't make it mandatory, which is frustrating. I know some other task forces have made it mandatory. You have to have a wellness check-in. 
And so we're doing a better job here, at least trying to get somebody here every month to sit down with us. And that's anonymous and pushing that has been helpful. What would be some of the reasons why people wouldn't buy into something like that? It's too, too new school. Mm, and I've been told okay. that I'm old school. You're that's, this is new school. And I mean, I like to think I'm young, but I mean, I fixed to turn 47 and I'm not young anymore. So I guess I would be old school maybe too, but I do think it's important. And I have a hard time sitting down. I haven't done as good a job taking care of myself as I, as I should have because of my schedule a lot of times. I, and I make excuses. And one of the mental health professionals told me that, that you, you make a lot of excuses not to come, come in here. It, it takes a heavy buy-in. And, and, and for, for police officers, they're always concerned about fitness for duty, which means if I disclose too much information, they're going to turn me in. They're going to take my gun. They're going to take my livelihood. They're going to take my profession. And the sad thing about it is some of them probably maybe need that intervention, but they just don't even want to take that path because they're so deathly afraid that I'm going to say the wrong thing. Even though I don't feel that way, I may say something that gets construed in a fashion that says, no, we need Kevin to have a little more psychiatric evaluation. We need to separate him from his duty, take his gun, and send him home for a few weeks. And and that frightens a lot of police officers. And that's probably the heaviest reason why they just don't want to buy. Yeah. Okay. That's understandable. In terms of that, certainly there's there's levels of confidentiality with that. But that being said, are those possible outcomes for... Like, is that the way the system is structured? Yeah, I mean, it's totally anonymous how we do it. But, I mean, if you do indicate something that they may think you might be suicidal or, and that's their job too, yeah. to find those of us that do need that intervention. And that's a tough spot for them to be in too. But yeah, even though it's anonymous, if we we cross the line somewhere, it's going to need to be addressed. And And really, it's a good thing. It's a bad thing if you said something wrong that you didn't really mean to say it that way and it happened. And I'm sure there's some anecdotes for that, but when you're able to get the help and somebody else can see what you're suffering from and that you really do need not just a wellness check-in, you need additional assistance and additional help, you know, that's the benefit. I just think everybody's scared to walk that line and not want to sit down with somebody. It's just easier to keep it inside or drink or, you know, do whatever, uh, complain to somebody else than to sit down with somebody. And we, we offer it's at no cost to our affiliates or any of us. There's no cost at all involved. Yeah. Would you say you're noticing change with regards to this, though? Say, for example, younger recruits that are coming in that are a little bit more willing and open to speak about it versus some of the, the more old school officers that are working? Not using maybe our mental health professional, but I know others have confided in me. It's like, hey, I, this is what keeps me sane. I have to go see somebody. And that's, that's perfectly fine. If they don't want to use our person, they have their own. Great. As long as you're doing something yeah. to take care of yourself and your mental health. I, I would say, and speaking to some younger ones, yeah, but a lot of our people are just like, hey, I'm, I'm married. I got to raise three kids. I'm trying to get to soccer games, and I don't have time. I can't keep up with my cases. I don't have an hour or 30 minutes to sit down with somebody and tell them all my problems. And some of them maybe are embarrassed, maybe think it'll get back to me, and it, it never does. You know. Yeah. In referencing this, and you've already spoken lightly to a degree about some of these statistics of people changing professions or changing maybe departments or whatever it might be every two years or or leaving the profession, perhaps. I mean, there's other stats that I just sort of dug up when I was researching for this. You know, one, a 2020 University of Cambridge study finds that one in five officers have some form of PTSD. 2020 U.S. government study found that 26% of officers struggle with uh, some form of mental illness. Now, ostensibly, like the work that you're involved in could have even higher rates in some of these areas. So 
as a commander of your division, you know, how do you go about managing yourself? Of course, you just mentioned like this professional coming in, you know, but like, are there other outlets for you? Are you consciously considering these things? It's, it's a lot to be processing. It's a lot to be handling day in and day out. So the question here is like, again, like, how do you manage that outside of what you just shared? And then also as a leader, how do you sort of manage that for, for some of your members or your task force? I mean, I probably have failed them in some capacity by not doing enough because it's such a private, sensitive thing to talk about. But, you know, mental health, there's only so many car wrecks and, and dead bodies and dead children. These people can see when they're going to wrecks and burning house fires and it, it catches up with you. I mean, just yeah, the pop- yeah. you take population statistics, too. I mean, you're seeing a lot more evidence of people being diagnosed with a mental health issue or PTSD. But then you compound that problem with the nature of things that we have to see and do, not just in the ICAT world, but just being in law enforcement in general. We have a lot of veterans that are in law enforcement too. So you're taking all the things, you know, the baggage they have from whatever they did overseas and saw, and you bring it here, and then you're having to deal with riots and protests and domestic after domestic after domestic after domestic, you know, which is probably the, the, the most busy thing you do as a street, uh, you know, street cop, you're just going solving domestic fights and disturbances. And you see terrible terrible things there and you see child abuse and you hear about it and and then you leave that world and you come into our world uh, you get promoted and you're an investigator now and you're on the ICAC task force and then you're you know you're having to watch and, and view and listen to these these things and so I can see where mental health numbers and, and have vicarious trauma are playing an impact on our people and it's sad because you feel mm-hmm. like you want to save the world and do the best job you can but like a buddy of mine told me, he said, well, how much longer does it have to be on your shoulders? Like, when's it somebody else's turn? And uh, and I, I think a lot of our people probably do feel that way. I mean, we recently had an attorney that she's had kids and said this is not for her. And she, and she made a, you know, an exit here. And I, and I think that was good for her. But as far as dealing with it, the biggest thing I do is try, I'm, I'm super flexible on the scheduling. Like when you can come and go to and, you know, we try to. The office allows us to let people work from home here and there, which is not a traditional law enforcement thing to, to work from home. But originally, we kind of had an agreement like, hey, unless it's an emergency, like somebody's calling us at midnight, we're not going to look at this stuff at home. It just it will not creep into our homes. Well, during COVID, if we didn't do that, it was not going to get done. The cases were just going to sit. And so we kind of all got together and said, we're going to have to look at this stuff in the sanctuary of our own home now to keep this train on the tracks. And so tried to be good with that, fighting for the mental health stuff, making sure some people have different trainings and conferences. That's kind of how I've combated it. I'll admit my failure. I, I probably haven't done enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it sounds incredibly difficult. It sounds like there, there, there's no playbook for this necessarily. Sure, there's like here, here are resources, here are some tips, here are some things. But like it's such a personalized experience as well and how you process it as a person, how you make sense of this, how you go about doing things. I, I can't even really imagine, you know, what that must be like and, and the amount of stress and pressure that that must, you know, evoke. But in terms of, I guess, making sense of it all, and this is another question I'm leading into, you know, and reflecting on it, you know, while you're in the profession right now, and perhaps even when you do hang it up down the road, like we focused a lot on the darkness and the dark side of all this, but there's a lot of terrific work that obviously you and your you know, team members are engaged in doing and, and capturing some of these perpetrators and whatnot. Like, how do you go about giving meaning to the work that you're doing? I guess that's what I'm driving at right now. 
knowing that you've had situations where you did something you didn't think was that important, but you know a child got rich, like you know you've made somebody's life better, they're not going to send you a thank you card or it's not even about getting the award or the recognition. I mean, we all like to get an award or recognition and it feels good, but I don't know anybody that came into this line of work just to get recognized for doing this. But I mean, the benefit is a lot of things I take great pride in if, if our task force is first to do something. Like we're the first ones to try this or we're the first person, first group to work with another agency or group or being innovative. That's right. I take the pride in it outside of knowing you're actually helping real children or you can't unring a bell. Right. You can't undo some of the horrible things that have been done. But if you can help find somebody and get them access to therapy and counseling and trying to move forward, those are the things you, you hope that you can do to get people on the right path. Because I know in talking to a lot of offenders, they tell me, hey, I was abused. Either these things happened to me. I'm just continuing this cycle of bad behavior. I don't, and not everybody is like that. But you kind of think, well, what if somebody could identify their problem, got them some help, got them some counseling? Could we have prevented, would I not be having this bad guy sitting next to me in my police car doing a you know recorded interview with them? So that's, that's kind of the hope that we can keep identifying. That's what I was saying earlier, is that, that whole what else thing. That's like our mantra. And South Carolina, our task force is what else, what else, what else? What other crimes can we uncover? Who else can we help? Who else can we identify and make their life a little bit? And two, in the federal system, you know, if we identify unknown victims, they're actually entitled to restitution. So if somebody has their video 10 years from now and they're arrested and charged in the federal system, they actually can get monetary restitution for that too. So that's a benefit as well, but just a small one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's it represents a bit of a reframe, really, in terms of like the the work that you're doing. And I suppose, or I'm guessing here, it'd be easy to focus in on on a lot of this darkness and a lot of like some of the things that you're involved in on that side of things. But then there is always that light as well, like what you're just explaining there. And I also understand that you're involved with a nonprofit called the Innocent Lives Foundation, and you're a recent recipient of an award there as well. Maybe you could speak about that. Chris Hagnag and his group. Brought me out to California and I got to mingle with in Hollywood and it was a magical night and it was nice to be recognized for what we're doing in South Carolina. I gave a speech up in front of, of people who get paid to speak for a living. So that was a little nerve wracking for me with the bright lights. Look, I couldn't see anybody. That was a trick to it. I've learned in public speaking. When you can't see anybody because of the bright lights, you do a better job. And uh, yeah, yeah, was able to recognize our task force, too, and say, hey, I, I'm happy to accept this award. But it was earned on the shoulders and the backs of the men and women of our task force. They made me famous. and helped me get that award. But it's nice to be recognized. And um, I've actually gotten a case from Chris before. His group's doing things a little different than some of the other NGOs that we've dealt with, our non-governmental um, organizations, because there are a lot of vigilante groups out there, which are very, very problematic for us in law enforcement in the ICAC world because they're monetizing it, his group's not. And so I like that component of it. But yeah, yeah Chris is an amazing guy. Um, I, I listened to his podcast with you and uh, he, he's done some amazing things um, and, and and his heart is in the right place and he's trying to do the right thing. And uh, I think he's got a good group over there. They're doing some innovative things too. So, You know, I, I guess like the, the reason for that question, is it kind of comes back to the, the work obviously that you're doing and the recognition of the importance of it as well. And I guess, in terms of attaching some sort of, you know, value to it for yourself included, you know, and, and, and making sense of making sense of it all, I guess, is what I'm driving at here. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I do have this middle segment here, a water cooler story. And here I just ask guests to indulge listeners with a story related to their work. So I'm curious what you have for us today. I kind of struggle with this one because so much of our stuff 
is so bad and the gallows humor. And so we were kind of talking earlier today, we were thinking about a case where I had done a proactive investigation on kind of what we call undercover work. And I was able to reverse engineer this back to a house in a, in a kind of remote area of the state and uh, got there. He's actually the guy too. I was talking about earlier that said, Hey man, I'm a crackhead and a thief. I don't look at child pornography and uh, ended up being his roommate. And uh, so he pulled the roommate outside and I was talking to him in the car. I actually went back and listened to this interview recently just to laugh. And uh, we're talking and getting where we need to be in the interview. Another investigator comes out and she's holding a piece of metal in her hand. And so I looked at him and said, is that a, is that a pipe bomb? And she was carrying a pipe bomb outside the house. So I had to have somebody come detonate it. And uh, so we ended up charging him with that. So I had a video, I got a video of them coming and blowing up the device. We had had an ATF come out, a couple of different bomb disposal units. That was a, a kind of funny thing where you think, oh, that's so stupid. Why would they pick up a pipe bomb? Well, nobody knew what it was at the time. We weren't really sure. It just kind of looked funny. And uh, she carried it outside. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a pipe bomb. I found that. Turns out he had an explosive background in the military, and he, he had built that device, and we charged him with that. Yeah, unfortunately, we also we missed a piece of evidence in that case, which is one of the reasons I bring it up, is uh, and that SD card had evidence of an unknown victim on it. And so we, we rectified that later, but it's tough when you know you missed that piece of evidence. But, you know, I, I had another story trying to think of ones that were kind of tame for your audience. Yeah. Is uh, we had done a undercover chatting investigation and uh, we run, we call them a large scale chat operation. We bring in a bunch of people, spend a whole week, work an eight hour week, just going after as many people as we can. And one of our investigators, he posted this genius ad and, uh, I hope I'm not giving away too much by repeating that ad because it's old news, but it was when they first said that from the Batman and Robin comics that Robin was bisexual. And so he posted an ad that said, finally a superhero for us. Somebody responded to the ad, thought that he was talking to, a, I think, a 13, 14-year-old boy. He traveled and was arrested thinking he was going to show up and have sex with, with this boy. And uh, myself and another federal agent were, were interviewing him and he had on jeans and I could see he had stockings on, but you know, he was real dirty and working all day and he had on a t-shirt. He was real grimy. And, uh, he said, Hey, can I take this off? Well, we didn't know what he was talking about. We said, sure. And this is all on camera. He takes his t-shirt off and he had worn like this full corset, like nice. And so to try to keep a straight face during that, uh, several people watched that video later and said, man, he's talking about two professionals. My buddy was just, he started chomping on his gun really hard and trying to keep a straight face. <laughs> knowing we were on tape and had to be professional and had to get yeah. through that, that was tough because neither one of us were expecting that. But uh, we got we had a really good interview with that guy. That, that was a good case. So the investigator that got in there did a really, really good job chatting with him too. So. Well, yeah, I do appreciate you sharing those stories there. But I imagine, like you said, you you probably have a lot more that, that you know, wouldn't exactly be suitable or you probably be slightly uncomfortable for not only yourself, but even listeners to hear, but, uh, it's, you know, encouraging, I suppose, to a certain degree that there is a lighter side or you can find a lighter side in the work that you're involved in as well. Yes, sir. I do have this other segment here, this last one, a crystal ball segment, as the name implies, we're looking towards the future, you know, trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And I mean, we've spoken about this already to a certain degree, and it doesn't take much to imagine that technology is certainly a game changer, you know, on both sides, really, you know, for both bad actors and for people like yourself. 
even just yesterday in, in prepping for this, you know, this talk, I saw something as I'd referenced earlier, the Innocent Lives Foundation. I think it was an Instagram post and it read, as technology is changing and evolving, so are sexual predators. And I imagine like this constantly being this unrelenting game of cat and mouse, back and forth, back and forth. As technology progresses, it opens up avenues to go after people, but it also opens up avenues for these bad actors to exploit in different ways. And what would you say to all of this? Yeah, I mean, they're trying to outsmart us all the time, and we're trying to outsmart them. And in law enforcement, like any other profession, you have to keep learning, you have to keep evolving. I mean, I'll tell you the biggest thing we're dealing with, crystal ball-wise, is, is AI. Is uh, where when the bad guy doesn't need to have a real child, he can use AI to create you know, a realistic looking child sexual abuse material. A lot of states are like us. We're scrambling to make sure our laws are where they need to be and they read correctly so we can charge appropriately because some of the statutes would protect bad actors. Yeah. That was the first question that I had. Are the laws in place? Are they structured in such a way or written in such a way that you still can go after people in that regard? Federally, it's written correctly. And so what a lot of states are doing is is we're we're scrambling. Uh, We've had meetings this week last week to try to get these laws on the books to make sure we are protected. And I think we're heading the right direction. I, I think certainly wouldn't look at a state like South Carolina and say we're super leading the charge in a lot of things, but we are when it comes to this. And so we, we are making a fight and, and pushing hard to make sure our laws read correctly because we just don't want guys or bad guys or girls going to that, that, that method of getting their child sexual abuse material and just self-creating them. And uh, it's a problem. And we're trying to address it. And because we've, we've had the problem previously where somebody may superimpose a child's head on a, you know, maybe something from adult pornography. And is that child pornography? It, you know, and so I think the way we're doing the law now, it, it'll address all of those things. So we're trying to stay on top of that, but trying to stay on top of the Indian encryption that these companies are going to, that's going to make it difficult where they're just going to claim deniability or we can't see what's going on. Because privacy is more important than catching people who are breaking the law and hurting children. That's causing us problems. So we have to deal with that. You know, things to mask your IP address, fighting the good fight on tour, uh, which is trying to keep up. And we yeah, thought, we thought yeah. we're doing a pretty good job here in South Carolina, but there's just no way to, you know, a lot of times people would call me every week and say, have you heard of this app or this program, or this website? You can't, you, you can't keep up with it. it it's no, so difficult. Can. It's so difficult. And uh, but we're trying to innovate because we want to stay where the bad guys are when we're doing those chatting operations, too, and trying to follow them around. So it's, it's a constant learning process. We actually developed our own class to teach people how to do those kind of chatting investigations. We've got one in January coming up. So excited to get with our group and teach a new generation of chatter and, and try to. That, that's that's the key too in law enforcement is finding that next generation, because I don't know how many more trips around the sun I have left in me. You know, I'm not naive enough to, to believe I'll be here forever. So we're trying to make sure we've got people trained and able and capable of doing these things long after the, I say, the veterans are, are gone. But we've got some people that have been in the ICAC world for 10, 15, almost 20 years, which is probably probably too long. Not knocking us as investigators, but the shelf life probably should be a little bit shorter. But in that same token, like we talked about at the beginning of the, the podcast, is you need that experience, that veteran experience, too, to, to get really good at what you do. But in the ICAC world, how much how much is too much for trauma? It's a fine line we're walking. But yeah, no, we're we're trying to stay on top of everything, but it is challenging. But back to the question, yeah, AI is really the, the biggest thing we're dealing with right now. 
To what degree from a skills perspective, you know, would you say like computer science or like technical skills within those realms are becoming that much more important? Like for what you just explained right there, I would assume that like maybe down the line, these are going to become absolute essential, you know, skills and abilities that people like yourself are going to have to have moving forward. You know, maybe getting into law enforcement, at least having certain computer studies courses within a law enforcement degree. Maybe there already are, but maybe even a greater emphasis perhaps. Oh, sure. Well, just in our, our, our digital forensic unit, you know, we have a hard time finding qualified people to do it. And it amazes me how many people are self-taught. Uh, we've had some really good examiners that have come here that they just taught themselves how to do computers and work on them and how to do these forensic examinations. It made really, really good careers for themselves. It's one of the rare times you'll see us as a unit hire somebody that's not experienced. So we'll hire somebody straight out of college with a degree. I mean, you can actually go study to do digital forensics. And we've had really good success for those people because they want to work hard. They want to do it. They've, I, I've shot how well those people have adapted to seeing the things they have to see. Because I see it maybe hundreds or thousands of these files or pictures a year. They're doing it in the millions because they're processing. So anytime somebody on our task force makes an arrest, we have over 125 affiliate agencies. They're doing most of that work. So you say we're going to make 310 arrests this year. They'll probably process the forensics for 290 of those. And so they're going to see these files in the millions, but yeah, oh, absolutely. My kids are, I got one in college and one that's graduated. And I wish looking back, uh, maybe I'd have pushed a little harder to do the computers and science component. I had, my son was a really good athlete. My daughter played college volleyball. So I, you know, I, I didn't push him maybe as hard in those realms as I should have. But um, yeah, no, I, I had some people reach out to me and say, Hey man, I, I didn't think I was going to have kids when I was 40 years old. Here I am. I can't, I, I want to learn a new skill. And I've suggested dude, the word of digital forensics is where you, where you can make your money right now. And I highly suggest them to go back to school to, to get a degree in that uh, and get proficient in that world. Well, I got to say, Kevin, I mean, I can't believe we're approaching an hour of this conversation already. Just blown through it. It's been an enlightening one from start to finish. And I can't thank you enough for all that you've shared today. You know, I think listeners are really going to come away with like this greater understanding for what the line of work, the importance of obviously what the work that you're doing and, you know, how critical it is. But then also like what the reality of it is at times, you know, from the wins to some of the challenges as well that are, you know, embedded within it all. So I can't thank you enough for taking some time and joining the program today. Oh, man, I enjoyed it so much. I can't believe it was an hour. It's uh, <laughs> it fun. Now, for those interested in learning more about Kevin and his work, you can do so via LinkedIn. And for reference, I will have a link of that in the show notes. And also, too, I mean, hey, if you like today's show, please be sure to tell a friend and share. To show further support, you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. As mentioned off the top, you can also check out highlights of this conversation over on YouTube. And if you do head over there, I would appreciate that like or subscribe. Now, finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.